It's the worst parts of us that sometimes are displayed on these centralized networks because it's driven by these algorithms. And, and I, I do think that the algorithms don't know the difference between love and hate because they're not humans. They just know the difference between high engagement and low engagement and virality. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars, it's about replacing them. So, while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Also today, we have Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about... Wow, what is it, like four months now? And I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded. And now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. 
That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. What's up, brother? Good morning, my brother. How you doing? I'm good, man. I want to go back and play ping pong. I'm, I'm, I want to play. You I want to play? I you, want to play. Do you play? I do play. So Danny's the, uh, the champion of the house. He's the ping pong big dog. It's not even close. It's not oh, even close. Wow. Yeah. Um, when we booked the house and we saw the table, Danny uh, came out straight out and said, what was it you said? No one will beat me all month. Yeah. Said no one will beat him all month. And he is good. <laughs> I mean, he lost. <laughs> you he, just you just won. If I if I saw that game again, yeah, one again. one game. One what game. was the score? It was uh, I can't remember, but it was but I won. But we do it like three out of five games is a win. Okay, so yeah. that's not an actual win. But he has also lost a three out of five. Oh, I was very drunk. You were not <laughs> drunk. You liar. He, he wasn't very happy. Anyway, man, how are you? I'm good, brother. I'm good. I'm so happy we we got to do this. Yeah. Um, my fault. It took a bit longer. Because I didn't connect the Twitter guy with uh, the guy I dinner with. And I was like, Danny, this guy keeps messaging me. I've got no fucking idea who it was. And then we go down to the Arbor thing and I see us. Oh, it's you, of course. So here we are. Here we are, man. Thank you so much. It was, uh, I, I, and I brought you something from that dinner. I think it was like, it was something that kind of really resonated with me. And it was, oh, okay. it was a specific gift. And I want to tell you why I got you this. Cool. So at, at a part of dinner, we, we started talking about family. And I remember like it got... It was like you, you, you were sharing so much about your family, and it, it went to this place that was beautiful. It's when I had to go for a little walk, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. And and I and I, yeah. what I felt from that was like you're such a, a fighter for your family. You're kind of this like core fighter for your family, and this is something that is like hunters and tribes receive this type of a bone as a symbolism, as like the fighter of the tribe. And it just felt so resonant of our relationship and what you did in that moment at dinner. I just felt like you should have this, and it was something that I wanted to bring for you. Thank you. As, as we get this started, so uh, I, I, I was, um, yeah. Let's have a look. Uh, I was, I was, I was embarrassed about that moment. I know I shouldn't be, but I it was, was a beautiful moment. I, I, I don't. Th- there's nothing to be embarrassed about. That's really kind of you, man. Uh, I won't tell the full story because it was a private moment between us at dinner. But we, uh, we did talk about family. Having kids and yes, yeah, challenging sometimes. It's like, uh, like Twitter, or you don't get a rule book. You just go in there and get into fights and figure it out. You don't get a rule book with kids. You just just go off and learn to parent, and you get a lot of shit wrong. And you try and be good, and and uh, sometimes it's tough, you know. And uh, in that moment, I was talking through. Uh, I feel it now. <laughs> yeah. Ha. Anyway, uh, parenting is the greatest thing you can do, and it's also a pain in the ass and can be challenging, but uh, I appreciate that, man. It's a bit of a waffle. Sorry, everyone listening. But, uh, yeah, it was an emotional moment, and uh, here we are. Uh, let's move on from this. I don't know what the fuck to say. <laughs> uh, I want to – normally, I sit here with a piece of paper with my notes, and they're usually categories of things I want to talk about. Yeah. What stands out to you about these notes? There's nothing on the piece of There's paper. There's nothing on the piece of paper because I don't think we need it. Because I think I know what I, I know what we're going to talk about today. Because uh, I I want you to tell the story you told me because it's fucking wild, man. Mm. It is wild what you told me, what you went through. You told Danny. Danny was like, oh my god, this is fucking. But tell me or tell the listener the story you told me about 
basically you died. Yeah. Which is fucking crazy. Yeah. And I, and I think the the lead up to this story is really interesting. So, you know, I, I was, I was building a company in my twenties. I had, I had sold the company when I was in 2016 and I was 240 pounds when I'd sold the business. And I was very unhealthy. Like everything I did about myself, I was drinking, I was just abusing things that I never should. So I sell the business, I transition out of my role of CEO in 2018. And I'm like, you know what? I gotta get my life together. I'm gonna go do an Ironman. Like right with an entrepreneur mind is just like, let me go do the hardest foot race possible. For the next 500 days, I lose 70 pounds. And I do an Ironman. I do the full distance. Yeah, and an Ironman is, uh, how long is it? Is it 1,500 meter swim? No, no, no. It's 4,500 meter swim. It's two and a half miles swimming. It's yeah. almost 5K swimming. Yeah. Then it's uh, 112 miles biking. And then a marathon. And then a marathon at the end. Right. So August of 2019, I do the Montreal Blanc full Ironman. So that was like the thing I was training almost a year and a half for. It was like, this is my moment. And, you know, I'm at the top of my world. I'm 169 pounds. I'm 8% body fat. Um, and I go on a trip to Hawaii and I come back and I'm sitting in a dentist chair. This is November 20th, 2019. Right. We'll, we'll just come to that. I don't want to just leave the Ironman. Let, let's talk about that because I've done, um, uh, what do you call it? A triath I've done a few triathlons yeah, back yeah. in the day, like uh, when I was probably early 30s. Sprint distances? Uh, so it's, I can't remember the swim. I mean, it's a 10,000 meter run, isn't it, at the end? Yeah, 10K run. 10K run. What is it? 40K bike? Yep. That, that's an Olympic distance. Yeah, it was Olympic distance. And I remember doing my my first one. And so bear in mind, that's about a quarter of a Ironman. Yeah. Um, and I remember doing it. The swim sucked. I actually, I actually got swimming lessons to do it. Uh, even though I can swim, yep. I couldn't swim that type of swimming. Right. So I got swimming lessons to actually swim properly. Did it in St. Catherine's Dock in London, which is basically just full of rats, piss, and dead bodies. It was oh. fucking gross. Uh, did the bike, loved the bike. Yeah. Loved the bike. Got to the run. And uh, I thought it was two laps of this circuit. So I do the first lap and I come around thinking, great, one lap to go. And it said three laps to go and it Ooh. killed me. And that, that was hard. I mean, that was really hard to think you did an Ironman is I, I can't even get my head around. I've never even run a marathon. I've done a half marathon. So, so the the framing of it is completely a mental challenge. And I think I think the race itself is almost an afterthought. But the hardest moment for me was, you know, I do the swim. It was amazing. I did the swim in 59 minutes. I was top 20 out of the water. So nice. swimming is definitely my my sport. I get on the bike. I do the bike in six hours. So I'm seven hours in and I got to do a marathon. Yeah. I had never run a marathon previous to this Ironman. I had ran 18 miles, which is my longest run, but I've never run a full marathon. I've never done a marathon. So I'm like, okay, probably something's going to happen at mile 18. So I run the first half pretty good. I do the first half of the marathon in one hour, 45 minutes. Mile 18 is where everything just shuts down. And that's, that's basically about nine and a half hours into the race. And I can no longer move. I'm I'm now walking for basically the last six miles. And the back half of the marathon cost me about three hours and 30 minutes, almost double the time of the first half of the marathon. Wow. I ended up finishing in 12 hours and 19 minutes. 
um, but was the the most impactful life-changing experience of my life because who I was when I started the race and who I was when I ended the race, I think was a completely different person. So the the last three hours was what mental torture? Were you I mean, were you able to walk and disappointed you couldn't run, or was the walk itself just hell? It, it was it was very challenging because I was trying to drink as much water as I could. I was taking caffeine. I was taking soda. I was taking everything to push my body forward. And I, what I would notice in myself, I, I have my coach in my mind and it's like, it's a bit emotional sometimes to think about it. The, he's like, the only thing that's going to push you through is not your body. You have to think about all the people that helped you get to this place. And if you just think about them individually over the time, that next three hours is what's going to get you there. So I was, I was going through a series of names for the next three hours of like my coach, my teacher, my parents, my brother, my coach, my teacher, my parents. And I, and I sit with them for a moment in my life and that would be the next step that I can go. And then the next step I can go. There was a video, actually, I had someone follow me for the race and you could see the last mile. I look horrendous and it's just barely. Did you have that sick. jelly leg thing where you could like, where you collapsing? Did that happen? No, no, no. Because I actually ran the last quarter mile. Okay, I cool. wanted, I wanted to get to the, like, I wanted to run over the finish line. But for when the photo. I, I mean, not just the photo, it's just like I wanted to do, I wanted to do that. But what's really interesting is the moment I finished the race, there was something in my mind was like, I think I could do that again right now. It was a weird feeling is like, I'm exhausted. I can do, but there was something in my body. I was like, maybe I can do that race all over again. Well, do you know that Rich Roll guy, the guy who yeah, got me in the podcast? Of course. You yeah, know, yeah. he's the reason I podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about this at dinner. Yeah. Did, did, okay, yeah he's, a, he's, he's done ultras and you know, I met him in LA once. Amazing human. Well, so he did five his goal, he wrote this book about it. I think it's called Finding Ultra. Yeah, Finding Ultra. So he did five Ironmen. In, it was meant to be in five days. I think it ended up being seven on five Hawaiian islands. Yep. And I found that book at a time where like, my, my life was such a car crash. And I read that book and I was like, this guy's amazing. And then went away on one of his trips and met him. And then he got me into doing the podcast. But he talks a lot about the mental side of it. Yeah. Um, I think... Anyone who's completed an Iron Man is a fucking hero. Like just, I, I can't even get my head around. You could do one, brother. Not with my back. Yeah, I, I can't run. I just can't run anymore. Yeah. I, I might, if I get the fusion done, then I might be able to. But I had the uh, microdiscotomy and it's, you know, I still get the herniation. I also could do with losing 50 pounds or something. But anyway, listen, unbelievable. Uh, maybe one day I'll do it. Maybe I'll do it with you. <laughs> that'd be awesome i want to i want to do another one at some point tell me what i used to do which i loved you ever done a tough mudder no that's on the that's on the list though i, yeah. I it's it feels like because i'm a sicko i like to hurt like i like to just do crazy things with my body so i'd, I'd like to do stuff like do you know that. tough mudder yeah i've never done it but i know what it is they're, they're really good fun uh, the only bit is like the electric shocks fucking suck and i'm like what why do this what is it like a 10k race it's yeah it's like a 10k race of obstacles so like you go you, you maybe go on like uh monkey bars and well, I don't, I fall in the water. Or, and then you go through like this, like mud and then through a river. And there's one bit, I remember the, this bit, there's like a skip full of ice. Uh-huh. But halfway through, there's like a barrier. So you have to go in the ice to get under it. And I remember that like taking my breath away. But they had two obstacles where they electrocute you. So one is like a, um, uh, it's like, you know, the soldiers where you're on your elbows crawling, crawling under these kind of like low wooden beams, but hanging down are electrodes that electrocute you. And I was thinking, what the fuck are you doing this? Mm. And it sucks. It really sucks. And then at the end, they electrocute you again. So I did two. And the second time I was like, I'm not being electrocuted. I just ran around. I was like, this isn't part of the challenge for me. This is bullshit. But they're good fun. I would, I would do one of those with you. Let's do it. Let's do it, man. Let's put it on the calendar. 
All right, man, we'll have to find one. I'll have to get fit. You have to give me your tips. Um, all right, tell me about the day you died. Um, well, let's, so we, let's go. So it's October, August, I, I do the Ironman. And then I'm like very active. I'm still racing. So I do the Malibu Triathlon, which was a really big race for me because I ended up placing fourth in my age group. Nice. The year before I was like 104th. So like just the, the improvement in what I want to do. So I was like, you know what? I want to keep racing. So I go to Hawaii. Um, I end up taking all my friends on a trip because I had sold the rest of my business. So I fly 10 of my friends to Hawaii for a week. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to climb Haleakala on my bike. And I did it in three hours, which was a really big achievement. It's the fastest road from zero to 10,000 feet. I was like, I'm going to be in this. I do that on a Sunday. And then I come back to LA on a Monday. And then Tuesday morning, I go to my orthodontist. I was getting my braces tightened. And I sit down in the bed and he turns on the light. And the moment he turns on the light, I just kind of leave my body and I enter the light. I just literally enter this light and I pass out. And what ends up happening, what my experience is, is I start following, and this isn't a dreamlike state, I start following another version of myself. So I'm walking, I'm the observer, and I'm seeing another version of myself, and I'm following this version down some path. It's grassy, but this other version of myself is a lot happier. It's a lot like brighter. It's just an individual that I was like, man, I, I wish I could be that person. And I follow and I get to a point, And then I wake up back into my body, but it's very different. I, I wake up and I'm pale white um, and I start throwing up and I'm very hot. Like I'm like almost like sw I'm sweating while sitting in the seat. And I look and the guy that was helping me out was looking at me. He's like, you okay, man? You like uh, passed out for a few minutes there. Like, you all right? And I was like, nope, I am not okay. Like I am definitely, there's something wrong with me. Like I feel like I'm, I start gagging more. I'm almost throwing up on the floor in a very nice dentist's office. It's a very nice place. And then the doctor comes over and the doctor's like, oh, you're fine. You just uh, passed out. Uh, this happens all the time. This is normal. People pass out on chairs all the time. And I'm like, I don't think I'm okay. I was like, I think there's something wrong. He's like, oh, no, no, you're fine. He's like, I promise you're fine. You can leave now. The doctor allows me to leave in my Tesla. Thank God I had a Tesla. And, and I leave and I drive to Santa Monica and I go to a business meeting and the people at the meeting are like looking at me. They're like, there is something very wrong with you. Like you need to call a neurologist. I was like, oh, I've never talked to a neurologist. Like, so I go on Yelp and I Google neurologist. I call a neurologist's office. I tell them what happened. And they're like, sir, you need to get to an ER right away. And I'm like, okay. I drive myself to the Santa Monica ER, the, the, the UCLA emergency room. I park my car at the front. I don't even think about it. I left the keys in the car. I just go into the front. I'm like, there's something very wrong with me. Um, I, I don't feel right. There's like something really wrong with me. They put me in right away. They put me into a CAT scan. And like this moment just kind of changed my life. They were like, sir, your brain is bleeding we think you had a uh, hemorrhagic stroke. We believe you have a thing called a cavernoma in your right temporal lobe. There's nothing that we can do here for you. We have to move you to another hospital to stabilize you. We have to move you to another ICU. Um, what's, wh who are people we can call right away? So I'm like sitting there and this nurse, I mean, she was the, the, the most, the nicest human. I mean, she was everything to me in that moment. And she just hugged me and she said, it's going to be okay. Um, 
And just thinking like being in my shoes at this time, you know, I, I changed my life. I've been so healthy. I had just climbed Haleaka on my bike. Like that, a lot of people don't, people barely drive up that thing. I did it on my bike. And then this lady's telling me that I like, I have a cavernoma, a benign brain tumor that's bleeding and they have to go stabilize me in another place. So I get in a, the, so my dad comes, my, my brother comes and they're just looking at me and it, they have to move me inside of an ambulance to the other hospital. They have to put an angiogram as soon as I get to the hospital, which is a camera to make sure that it's not an AVN because an AVN would kill me overnight. What's an AVN? It, it's, it's something that instead of an, uh, it would be an artery instead of a vein. Um, so what happened with me was it was a series of veins that exploded in my right temporal lobe. It's the, the photos are gnarly. Like there's this hole in my, like there's this bleed just bled all over. And that's what caused the seizure. The experience I had was a hemorrhagic seizure. And thank God it wasn't an AVN because they would have to have surgery like immediately and cut my brain open. But they're like, listen, we're going to stop the bleeding and we're going to just stabilize you for three days in the ICU. So I'm, I'm sitting there for three days. Um, they had stopped, the bleeding had stopped. They had to wait. What, what they had to do is because this had bled so severely, there was a pool of blood sitting in the brain. They have to take this thing out. But because there was so, so much blood, they couldn't do it that day. They had to wait a few weeks before I could have brain surgery to remove it because it would have been a stroke risk for me for the rest of my life if they didn't take it out. So I stay there for three days. And then six weeks later, I have brain surgery. January 9th, 2020, um, I went to, this is, this was the start of my COVID. Um, I went to, you know, Caesar Sinai and I had brain surgery for seven hours and they, um, they cut my right temporal lobe. I'll show you some photos. It's really not like doctors sent me some photos of inside of my brain. So if anyone thinks that I don't have a brain, I can always show them that, that image. I kind of want to see it. Uh, it's, it's a gnarly photo and they take out the cavernoma. And now I have a titanium plate holding the can right we, of my skull. Can we put it up? Do you want people to see it? I don't mind. It's on. I think it's on my Instagram at some point. What, <laughs> I, what's, I, what's your Instagram? It's just my name, my full name. Uh, it's on there somewhere. If not, I can I can send you this image. It's a pretty gnarly. Daniel, it's 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 a pretty gnarly. Uh, I can send it. So to did you. they have to do that thing? Where, did they have to like cut apart your skull away? Oh no, it's not just cut the skull. So they cut a circle. They remove the skull cap. They had to retract. Hold on, two, hold on, hold on. Uh, yeah. slow, slow, slow down. Yeah. When you say the skull cap, the, the no, no, not the cap. No, no, no. They, oh. they, they, they put a hole here. So it was in the right temporal lobe. It was about two inches behind my right eye. Okay. What they had to take out. So they do a smaller incision. So I think it's like that big of a hole and they remove that piece. Okay. Then they remove the skull cap. They remove all the stuff. Then they have to cut the brain and retract the brain by two inches to get inside of the brain. It wasn't on the outside. It was on the inside. So then they have to retract the brain. I maybe you should just see this photo because it's a, this gives you a good visual of what does it actually look like on the inside. Um, and they take it out from the inside. Airdrop and, it to airdrop it to Danny. <laughs> Here, this is what it looks like. I don't. I mean, you could see the the retraction. Holy shit! <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah. Um, so you're gonna airdrop it. Yeah. We, need, um, we needed this on the big screen. So. Hold on, I've got so many questions. Uh, okay. Uh, it's a gnarly have, you got a, have you got a gnarly scar? Um, well, I'm growing my hair out, but when it's short, you can see the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. You uh, can see the whole thing. How high risk was the operation? I don't think that high risk because, well, okay, let's put context here. Brain surgery is very high risk when it comes into surgeries. But the good thing was I was extremely healthy. I was, you know, at the peak of physical condition. I was good in a lot of ways spiritually. So... There was, I guess, little risk, but who knows when they go into your brain, like they don't, 
they don't know. It's very, I would say low risk for a high risk surgery, I guess. Okay. I, I like they said, you're going to be fine. We do this all the time, but this is also a brain surgeon telling you that. Like we do this all the time. You're going to be fine. Damn. And, and so it's, um, it was intense, man. It and was, how it, long was recovery afterwards? I think this is part of, I think my spiritual path of like, I spent basically from the moment of my seizure up until the moment of my surgery, I, I had a practice. And I was in this weird way practicing how to die, but without actually dying. And okay. I was like, I was reading a lot of Ram Dass and the concept of death became a very like close emotion to me. So I have a very interesting relationship with death now because I've experienced it so closely in my life in so many ways. Have you read the, the, the you must have read the Tibetan book of Living and Dying? Not that, I, I read the Kapha, the Katha um, and the Upanishads. So the thing that's, the weird thing about that book, I've, three times started it <laughs> holy shit yeah it's pretty gnarly man hold on so yeah. that's inside my my skull that's wild man. yeah so you see like they have to cut the brain open to get in there um and then they take out the extraction i don't think i've ever done showed this on a podcast do you mind sharing is, it uh, no it's on my instagram i put it up there at some point Whoa, um, man. so it's Oh, I've got questions. Yeah, I've got, yeah, I got yeah. questions about that. I don't know that we should keep it on the whole time. No. But yeah. like, I think we should. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've tried, I've tried to read the book like three or four times. And each time I get about to chapter three and I'm like, I think I've got enough from this. But the, the, my big takeaway from it is the, the Tibetans, um, they spend their, their entire life is, is dedicated to pre be prepared for death. Of course. To leave, you know, life with, you know, no angst, no, enemies no like that's the entire preparation of their life whereas us morons here tend to do the exact opposite we, we've, we're scared of death and we we spend our whole lives maybe avoiding it yeah and just being general belling bellends to each other and i mean i'm not saying everyone's that but like a lot of people do my my practice even every day in my own practice is that i want to live a life that the moment that i transition i've done everything that i could to to be my best self and then also do all the things that I could do in my life to, to better the world forward. That was, a, that was a thing that I realized spiritually. But perhaps what was happening to me in my life is I was being a little bit, um, I wasn't pushing myself as much anymore after I sold my business. I think my, my, my I was like, you know what, I'm chill. I, I don't have to work again. I have enough money that I don't have to work again. You weren't pushing yourself. You did an Ironman. I know, but maybe, maybe professionally I wasn't pushing myself. And maybe that was the thing like, hey, you got to get back to work. <sighs> you have things you have to like you can be selfish in the world and do all these things for yourself but the world needs you for more things go back to work okay so they had to cut your brain open yeah uh i know nothing about that, how the brain works but i know it's a, a very delicate organ yeah <laughs> um did did any of it changes like and did you have any personality changes from this i don't know about personality changes but it was a very rough six months okay. like, like I, I will say that it was the most challenging for me emotionally I've ever had in my life because uh, TBI generally has a lot of waves that comes with it. Your emotions change. Your, your chemistry in your brain is also changing because imagine it's missing a piece that is no longer there. It's had a pretty traumatic event that being split open. The neurons are reconnecting. So I had very depressive bouts. I had suicidal thoughts. I had all the things that you would think about um, as a part of it, but definitely came out ahead in the end. Yeah. But I think that's my perseverance in my soul was like, you know, if, if I'm not dead yet, there's no reason to stop. And, and that's kind of what encouraged me to, to get back to, I guess, work and get back to like kind of building the thing that I'm spending all my life force energy on now is, 
is to where I am. And I think that was a big catalyst. But I think the spiritual element is really important. Remember I told you that I was following another version of myself? Yeah. I fundamentally believe that I switched places with that being when I came back into my body. Okay. So I think I woke up being a much happier version of myself. Whatever that was, whatever that experience was in the light, whatever you want to call it, I think I switched places and, and that's the being that I am here because I feel a lot more grateful for my life now than I did before because it really centered me of knowing like at any moment I can disappear, at any moment I can die, at any moment I can get hit. I, I, I just don't know because... I was in the peak physical shape of my life and I get hit with that. Like anything is possible at this point. Anything is possible. Well, I I, I know about that kind of like get into peak physical thing because I did like despite people thinking I'm just like this fat loser. There was a time a few years ago where, where it was slightly different. I, were, I was coming off drugs um, and I ended up in hospital. I had something called an SVT, but I thought I was having a heart attack. Um, and pretty much the next day I bought a pair of trainers and went running and then ran for a year. Uh, I got, got really good. I'll show you a picture. You won't recognize me. I was like 12 and a half stone, looked good, uh, felt good. I could go out. I could go out any day and just run a half marathon. I wasn't working. I gave up work, which was great. Mm. And then over the, the space of the last four years, I've let it all go. My back's fucked. I'm not as fit. I vape. don't drink a lot, but, you know, I drink. Uh, I've let that all go and it's like on my mind all the time to get back to that. Because I wake up in the mornings now and I just feel like, I don't want to feel like that. Do you want to change that? Fuck yeah. What's stopping you? I like whiskey a lot. I like nicotine a lot. And uh, I, yeah, I just <laughs> I like the badger. <laughs> yeah. No, I do want to do it. And I, and I know I can. It's just that, you know, when you've got to get going. But your body remembers. Like, like some people have never felt that good. You felt that good, mm. right? You're like you've been to that place, so you know the feeling, and the body remembers. The it's, body's it's, smart. I think it's mainly the back, right? So I, uh, I, I did the back in first time. It was running. It's just out doing a run one day, and I just suddenly had to stop. Mm. And then I had to. This was back when uh, before my mum died, and uh, I had to phone her up, and she had to come pick me up. Uh, and then I was okay, and then I ran again, and then it went again, and I basically. Had th- th- Maybe it's like three years. And then eventually I had the surgery and I started to feel okay. Couldn't run because I had leg pains, but I was going on big walks. Uh, I used to call Danny in the morning, go for like an hour walk and we'd just we'd chat. And then, um, and then it's gone again. Like I feel like it's my back in some ways holding me up. But I also think that's potentially the excuse because I'm thinking, well, am I doing the right things? I'm not doing yoga. I'm not doing Pilates. I'm not doing those things that you went to do with a back injury. I'm not shifting the weight, which again, I'm meant to do. But if I could, if I could get my back okay, I mean, I might not be able to run again just because the impact is bad for it. Yeah. But I can get on a bike. I can get on a peloton. I can go could for you a do hike. Sta- could you do stationary bike work? Yeah, I mean, I, I've got a peloton. I'm totally fine on that. Yeah. Um, I can, I can, I've got a racing bike. Oh no, I haven't. That, <laughs> that went up in a fire. Um, How much do you walk? Uh, on and off. What, what did we do the other day? Uh, we probably did. I don't know, six, seven k. So when I'm at home, I will usually most days do a do a 5K walk, yeah. whether that's go down the gym, do it on the machine, watch a film, or go for a walk around the park, and I'll you know and I'll do a workout, but not in not enough. Basically, I I was in that place where every single day I would exercise and feel good, and now in a place like can I be bothered to do it today? I just need to flip that, but I, I need to make yeah, I need to make some changes. I mean, it becomes a non-negotiable at some point, right? Yeah. Like, like for me, at least in my day now, 
my fitness is a non-negotiable because, okay. and I made that within myself a non-negotiable. Like, cause I know the impact of how much it makes me feel better in the back end. Like, like, fuck, I don't want to go run or I don't want to go to the gym today. But I know that the moment after that workout is done, I'm 110% better than the moment before I started that workout. Yeah. So it becomes just a non, there's non-negotiables in reality. You drink water is a non-negotiable. You eat food is a non-negotiable. If that's a non-negotiable. I'll tell you, tell you one of my favorite workouts. Have you got a, an Oculus? I do not. Have you, never, have you ever used one? I've used one and I don't, I'm not a, into that stuff. Have you done the walk the plank? Oh, actually, yes, I, I have one. I have done that. Yeah. We so, did it. We did a campaign for that for Sony back in the day, my last company. How did you? Yeah. Well, I've got mine here and I haven't actually used it, but the one thing I love in it is the boxing. Because uh-huh. you get in there and you, you have a fight and it's yeah. fucking hard. It's a good workout. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, no, look, I know I need to get her back into it. It's becoming more and more obvious I need to get back into like regular exercise. So, I mean, I'll figure it out. And so like, you know, you asked about recovery. Yeah. I was relentless. I mean, within 30 days, I started running again. I ran a mile with my mom 30 days after my brain surgery. I'm still like, you know, it's still shaved on the side. I still have a little patch there. And I have a video of it on my Instagram. It was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to go on a run with my mom. And my doctor's like, you're not going to run for six months. I was like, you don't know who the fuck I am. Like, <laughs> like, like they even said that like, you're supposed to stay in a bed for two days. I was like, they even told me that like, I was the fastest person. They like go home. I went home after two days after I have brain surgery. I was like, I'm ready to go home. I don't want to like, I was walking a few hours after my surgery. And they're like, people take like a week to walk after this thing. I was like, I'm good, bro. Like, let's go. Please tell me you had insurance. Um, yeah, I had insurance. Yeah, I think it was a quarter million dollar surgery. Otherwise, you'd you'd have to start another business. Yeah, I mean, no, I really think that surgery cost a quarter million dollars, like on paper. Damn. It was like after all the, because there's so many things they have to do to prep you for it, and then you're in there, and there's four doctors, and you know, I went to the best doctor in the world, right? He's the best. Doctor Chu is the best brain surgeon in the world at Cedar Sinai in Los Angeles. So I wanted the best to cut open my brain. Damn, man, that's it's such a wild story. <laughs> uh, I can't, I can't even imagine going through that. And and it's it's like a fucking reminder. It's like get fit. You need to be in better physical health if anything does happen. You know. And that's the risk, right? Like they even mentioned to me, they're like, usually if someone is a little bit less fit, it's much higher risk because it's the recovery, right? Like I was working with a meditation coach the six weeks up to my surgery. And one of the big things that I, I did, which was surprising to the doctors, was like, I was like oming and meditating before they put me out. And I'm like in the bed. They're like, okay, count from five, four. I'm like, ohm, and I'm oming. And I think because my state was so calm, it had led to the back end of my recovering being a lot better. There's a lot of studies that say that if you go into a surgery in a much calmer state and you don't have all these endorphins about running that are aggressive, on the back end, you're going to be much better. And that was really my focus is I wanted to be very still and calm going into that surgery. Even though I could have not w- woken up, that was a real risk. Well, listen, we're going to talk about your new business. We're going to talk about <laughs> Bitcoin, but I can't let you get away with not telling me about this because you, you said earlier, uh, you talked about your transition. What do you mean by that? So the transition as in from the... the yeah, I know what the, you mean. The, the, the old person that I was into the new person that I was? No, you talked about it with regards to death. You'll be ready for your transition. So your question is asking is like getting ready for the day that I die? Yeah, but you mentioned your transition. What do you, what do you mean by that? I don't know what you mean by what I mean by that. Well, <laughs> what, are you, what are you getting at when you talk about your transition? Because like you can say, I just die. But when you say transition, you're like implying you're, tran- you're going to transition to somewhere. Yeah, or something. I, I think that the soul moves on. 
I think that there is something that's innate to us. This is just my personal belief is that I think we are a bit of a meat suit in this experience. Okay. But I think there's something a lot deeper that drives our soul besides that. There's something that when you meet someone and you look them in the eye and you feel like you've met them before, you probably have met their soul in some lifetime before. So the transition of this potential meat suit into whatever the next, either it is a meat suit or another level of consciousness, I think my entire experience here on this earth is to prepare for that. You are born to prepare to die. Your entire life is about the preparation of your death because in my opinion, your death is the most important day of your life. These, all these things, by the way, like all these extra things that happen in between life are stories that we create for ourselves. These are stories that we create in our consciousness. But the true fight night nature for us is that moment that we leave, we transition, and we're working towards that. I believe that you're here still, you're still here, I'm still here, we're still here because we're supposed to keep working on ourselves because there's a there's an externality that'll get us to the next place. And it's the work we're doing now that wants to lead us to that next place. It's interesting because um, there was a thing, I can't remember what it was a while ago. It was like a study or a series of interviews with people on their deathbeds and just asking them the questions about their life and yada, yada. And it's all cliches. Their response is like, I didn't spend enough time with my family. I had too many arguments. I just worked too much. It's like that, that reflects somebody who hasn't prepared death right that's somebody's just that live their life and they've got to the point of death you what you're saying is you prepare so at the point you you are going to die you're at peace because maybe you've repaired all those broken relationships and you've you've done all the things you want to do yeah and you you've loved the way that you wanted to love like those six weeks between november 20th and january 8th you know i did everything i like made love when i wanted to make love I said, show off. I said, how much I love. How do you do that? How? (laughs) (laughs) I I went on the trips that I wanted to go to. I said, I love you to the people that I love the most. Um, I hugged the people that I love the most. I ate the foods that I wanted to eat. I I did the, I did everything that I wanted that I knew like, fuck, if I die today, I feel good about it. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a lot, a lot I want to do still. Okay. So what's left then? Everything is left. Come on, man. Everything is left. There's so much. There's so much breath to life. You know, like when I wake up, when I wake up now, I just have so much fucking gratitude for all the things that I get to do. Because what's happened since that moment, yes, it's been challenging, but professionally and for my soul has been the most invigorating two years of my life. It's been the best, like the thing and the things that happen, how things have happened with life. This is why I really believe I switched with something else because what has happened, who's come into my life, how things are happening. It's like poetry. Like life has turned into complete poetry in so many ways. You're like the happiest guy I know. Um, occasionally we do interviews and afterwards we're like, fuck, we need more Bitcoin. I know at the end of this one, I'm going to be like, fuck, I need to get my shit together. <laughs> Did you ever um, go back to the dentist and let you leave? Oh my gosh. So I had a thing with him after because I went back and he was so distraught. Like he was just, he came to the hospital that night and he like, he was like, Justin, I'm so sorry. I should have called 911. You should have been, because imagine I would have drove and hit a car and he let me leave, a doctor let me leave his office after having a, a very heavy seizure. So I've had a quite a good relationship. My teeth look great. Thanks doc. Like teeth are straight, but I think it's changed a lot of his practice. You know, he, um, he was trying to be very helpful. And, you know, I, I feel bad because, 
you know, he didn't know. He truly, like, he thought it was a vasal vagal dilation that created a pass out in the nerve on the back of your neck. That's what his whole thing was. He didn't think that I had a seizure because of a cavernoma that was bleeding in my right temporal lobe. It's very, it's very rare, by the way. Like the thing I have, actually not so rare. Um, they think that a lot of people have these in their brain, right? They're these like little raspberries, but usually they never bleed and explode. People have these sitting in their brain. Um, actually, there's a very famous fighter that I've gotten quite close with. He actually, he won the championship in Bellator and then he wasn't allowed to fight to, to regain his championship. Um, Rafael Lovato Jr., like he's like, I call him my blood brother because he has all these cavernomas in, in his brain like me, but he has never bled. And um, there's a lot of people that potentially have these. And you wouldn't know unless you get a MRI of your brain. And most people have no reason to get an MRI of their brain. It takes an hour. It's really loud. Hmm. So I had the symptoms. That's what created yeah. my issues. And I had the bleed. So right now, I mean, what's crazy, you go, if I get an MRI, there's a piece of my brain just missing. There's just, there's just fluid there. It's just this hole there. It's well, so I, think that's, I think that's. The, I'll show you the photos. It's gnarly, dude. I think that's the part of the brain which controls anger. Oh, hey, I, I don't know. About you've lost that. that, man. I don't know. It, you know the the weird thing was, I asked the doctors like, so what? What's going on in this part of the brain? They're like, nothing. You're fine. Like I was like, what do you mean nothing? Like, what do you, <laughs> come on, are man. You, come on, dog. Like, the, what you're saying is you don't actually know. That's what you're saying, and that's okay. Like you don't know what goes on in that part of the brain. It's very quiet. Like yeah, you don't know. I believe there's a bit of soul consciousness at that part. I believe that there's. Some things are related to like, what is your, who are you supposed to be in the world? Isn't the brain like the most incredible but weird thing? Yeah. It's amazing. Like it's it, amazing. Like how that came out of evolution to create a brain that controls our thoughts, who we are, how we speak to people, how we talk, control magic. Everything. Your brain is magic. Yeah. Because it allows you to speak and your words are spells. It's magic. But how it stores memories as well, it's kind of weird. We looked it up because we did an interview with Toma. Toma Strobelite? Strolite, yeah. Strolite. Why did I say Strobelite? <laughs> Toma Strobelite. <laughs> Fucking idiot. Toma Strolite. He, um, he did a thing comparing Bitcoin to a brain. Ooh. So I did this whole bit where I was like looking up how the brain works. And there's so much they don't, still don't, they fully don't understand. They just don't get it. Yeah. This is, this is the best brain surgeon in the world. And I'm asking him, he's like, yeah, we don't really know. Yeah, no idea, man. At least it wasn't on the other side, because if it was on the other side, it'd be bad news. Why? What's the other side? Because that's like motor skills and stuff. Oh shit. Yeah. But I'm good. I like I run, I work out, I, I did I did a triathlon a few months ago. Like I'm still You know how like uh alcoholics or drug addicts when they come off they get a sponsor? I feel like I need a fitness sponsor. You got Rich Roll in your corner, man. You got one of the best in the world. Do you want to hear a story about that? <laughs> this is funny. So uh Rich won't mind me telling you this. Uh, Rich was an alcoholic. Yeah. And uh, I was in LA once and I just went over to visit him and he said, oh, I've got an AA meeting. Do you want to come? I was like, yeah, fine. I'll come along. Um, see what it's like. Bear in mind, I, I was drinking at the time. I wasn't like giving up drink or anything. And uh, so I went along to this meeting and sat and watched everyone have their talk and explain their stories. And, and at the end of it, this uh, guy comes up to me and he's like, uh, hi, how you doing? And I'm like, yeah, pretty cool, man. He's like, uh, uh, You've got a great sponsor, you know, a great buddy in Rich. I was like, yeah, yeah, he's, he's cool. He's like, so uh, what's your number? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, how many days have, since you've last drunk? I was like, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. And he goes, he puts his hand on mine. He goes, we all say that. And I was like, no, 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 seriously, I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. And he went, he just looked at me, nodded, and went, and walked off. And I was like, shit. But so, uh, 
yeah, Rich is a, is a great guy to have in the corner, but he, he's a bit too busy for me to uh, say, Rich, get me get me fit. I might I might tap you up. Happy to help, brother. But I also stopped drinking after my surgery. So you don't drink anymore? No. <sighs> Fuck's yeah, sake. I, I stopped drinking. All right. I Danny, stopped drinking. No more drinking. I'm still drinking. No more vaping. <laughs> I've got to stop the vaping. Um, okay, cool. Listen, it's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it. Um, and uh, but we uh, we should probably talk a little bit about Bitcoin. We should talk about Bitcoin. It is a, it <laughs> is like a, it is a Bitcoin show. Yeah, um, but it's life's good too. Look, I, I wanted I wanted you to tell the story on it because I think it's uh, it's an interesting story and it's just fascinating what you've been through and it is inspirational, man. It is uh, it is making me think. But um, talk about your new business, sure, because this is fascinating and this is like right where I'm interested right now. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I have the surgery and then we go six months later, um, I, I moved to Austin and one of my advisors and just friends for a long time, they sent me the lightning white paper and I'm reading it. I'm on a flight to Istanbul because I'm in like a travel mode, having fun. And I read this thing and I'm like, wow, this is like the solution to this thing I've been working on for almost 10 years. Like this has been a problem I've been trying to solve for about 10 years that I've been working through. And I was like, well, if you can solve this one problem, which is like payments between creators and fans, then the downstream effects of building a new potential creator network or a social network, whatever you want to call it, is 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 like a very big possibility. What so, is, what is the problem though? I think the problem is right now there's a third party in the middle that is the arbiter not only of truth, but it's the arbiter of almost everything that happens between a creator and a fan. Because fundamentally, creators own nothing on centralized social networks, right? You, you don't, it's an illusion. It's an illusion that we've created that people say, my Twitter, my Instagram, my blah, blah, fill in the blank of centralized network. It's not your anything, right? You don't own the audience. You don't own the relationship. You don't own the attention. You don't own, like when you send a message, you don't own that particular, even on an advertising perspective for YouTube, for example, you don't own that relationship between YouTube. YouTube is the advertiser. You are simply the product, right? Like you are the product in that instance. And they so, can cut you off at any moment. At any moment, right? Like, like one of the comparisons is that most creators have built a mansion in someone else's backyard without a rental agreement on shaky sand that can be kicked out at any time for no particular reason. Every single day I wake up, I'm sent another email about this creator being banned, this one being shadow banned, this one being turned off, because we've kind of built this illusion in our, in our, in our brain that the things on the web we own, and even at the base layer, we don't own it, right? Like we don't own our identity online. This is a thing that's tripped me out over the last few months is like, we don't own anything about our identity online. What's an example of that? There's- Jeremy, shut up. <laughs> there's 1.5 billion Gmail accounts out there in the world. Your Gmail account is what you use to log in everything. It's been my account for the last 12 years. I use it to log into my Facebook, to my Instagram, to my bank account. But the base layer of my digital identity, I don't even own. You, and don't, then, you do not know what you're doing to Jeremy right now. Is Keep he? going, brother. Keep going. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> Um, so like all of these things are like, I realize that the system is fundamentally broken. Bitcoin ultimately fixes the money. If you can fix the base layer of money and then downstream fix everything else, there's an option. I think there's a, another good example in that you've talked about Twitter and YouTube, et cetera, the social platforms. But I actually think a very good example in that is something like Patreon, which was 
designed as being the connection between creators and their fans and that you could uh, upload your content, you could charge people to access it. But they started becoming, they started deplatforming people for opinions. So, so let me, let me explain why even Patreon is broken, right? Let, look at the, look at the steps in the funnel from you as a creator to your bank account and everything in between. So if you're a fan and you're subsidizing a creator through Patreon, you have a couple layers, right? So you have you as a fan, then you have the credit card itself. Then you have the credit card processor with the, which is Stripe. Then you have the website. Then you have the website hosting service. Then you have the bank that actually transfers the funds. And at the final layer, you have the bank itself. People think that Patreon is between two people. It's not, it's not even close. You have almost six layers of companies that are required to move that transaction. But let's now go into the world of Bitcoin and Lightning in particular is that you have two Lightning wallets. I send you a payment inside of Lightning for something that you did within a podcast. And I really enjoyed that podcast. There is maybe a few node hops between that, but if it, the channel topology is right, it's directly to you. It's instant settlement, it's instant transfer, and it's censorship resistant. This is why I think the solution with Bitcoin and Lightning is the better solution ultimately, is because you're removing this like six layers of an arbiter. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking, and if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up, it is Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S, and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also for every dollar you spend over 50,000 annually, 
you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, today we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Let's look at it in terms of what I do, and you figure out the weaknesses. So I have a podcast hosted on a website with an RSS feed. Yep. And I have listeners yep. who subscribe in Spotify, Apple, whatever. And our model is we have a certain number of listeners who listen to a certain number of shows, and the sponsors pay to reach those. Sure. Okay? We like the model. We don't want it to break. The biggest risk to our model isn't YouTube. We don't rely on YouTube as a revenue model. It's great for us to put shows out. We would hate to lose it, but it isn't a risk to our model. Spotify have started tagging some of our shows with COVID. Yeah. Okay. We don't know if we'll end up having shows removed from there. We haven't yet. So that's a risk because that's audio. Yep. Okay. Our biggest risk is if something happened to the RSS feed, we lose all our subscribers we essentially have to rebuild. Now, we rebuild quickly rather than stand up fresh, but that is a risk to us. Yeah. Can we ever eliminate all these risks? Our, our website is hosted with Squarespace. That's a risk. Of course. Does our content become not acceptable content? And Squarespace, if Squarespace removes us, Danny, do we lose the RSS feed? Uh, we own the RSS feed, but it is hosted on Squarespace at the moment. If we move the RSS feed, do we retain the Descriptions. Yeah. Okay, so we can lose that. We can lose that website, but we can move to another platform. Yeah. That's fine. So our risk really is, do we ever get deplatformed by Spotify and you know, Apple and all the podcast hosts? I, I think the biggest thing is we want to move into a world where creators not only own the content that they're distributing, but they own the distribution of that content, right? We want to get to a place where there's three core things creators own. They own the base layer of their identity online. They own all the data that they and the content that they distribute freely. And then they own the relationship through money, through Bitcoin and Lightning. And I think that the way that we have to move is you have to own the distribution yourself. Because at the end of the day, if you are now building on another centralized service that can turn you off, you lose the distribution. RSS is amazing. It's one of the most like robust things on the internet that you can't really turn off. And that's a great base layer. But what are going to be the applications at the end state that allow you to own the distribution? Like one thing that's really important, like Zion is not a platform. Like we're more of a utility. We don't control the relationship between creators and their fans. We're not the central broker for messaging, right? Like we don't allow a message to go through any central server. It's basically going between a creator and a fan. So these are the things that we hope that this new world, whatever you want to call it, Web3, I don't know, I'm not a good definition person, but we want to get back to creators owning the relationship with their fans. That's the biggest thing. And you owning the the distribution, that's the, the biggest coin because people are following you for your message. You're the creator. They're not supposed to be following Spotify. 
They're not supposed to be following Apple because at the end of the day, they can turn you off. They can say, you know what? This distribution point is no longer valid. That's the scariest thing about like all these podcasters that are in different places. Like, oh, we're going to turn you off from our podcasting app because they own the distribution. They have, they retain the customer. That's like who owns the relationship. That's the key thing that we want to break and we want to change. And you have to start from the base layer and move up. So, so how, how does it work? Talk me through this. I mean, I think that, and, and really the new version to me is what the most exciting piece is uh, of where we're going. And I, I hope this podcast comes out after April 4th, because that's when the big release is, is happening. Well, yeah, yeah. So in terms of Zion, it's, it's, I think, somewhat simple, but a little bit complicated. So we're at the base layer, we're trying to use decentralized identifiers for you to establish your identity. So what that means is that you have a DID that establishes who you are online for the first time owned by a public and private key pair. The next layer is your identity hub. How, how does that work though? Like so, think of me as the user. It, it works the same way as any centralized service where you just kind of say, okay, I want to create a DID. It's going to work like a regular app. I'll show you after the, the podcast. Can you show us on here now? No. No, I can't show you on here right now, okay. but I can show you on a, a, a thing because it's not... It's but not like, perfect. do I have to do any technical bollocks? No, it... you don't. Okay. And that's the thing. That was my, like, I think when we first launched Zion, the whole concept was like, you have to have a lightning node. We create the channel. It was so cumbersome and so complicated that, yes, we got 3,000 creators to use the app, but we have 47,000 people on a wait list that want to use Zion. And I realized to myself, like, there's no way a one user, one node is scalable. It's impossible. Like... We, like just to tell you context of the Lightning Network, 75% of all the nodes that joined the Lightning Network in the last six months since we launched are Zion nodes. We're 75% of the global growth. That doesn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense that one company is leading to 75% of the global growth. This model was unsustainable. So the first concept is- Was that a risk to the Lightning Network itself? No, not at all. It's much. It's so, why, fine. Why, so why does that matter then? Because what are we going to be? If we convert the waitlist, what are we're going to be? Sixty thousand of the twenty thousand nodes, and now we're eighty percent of the global. But why? Do, why does that matter? I think that it's. I think it's just too complicated for a company to to have all that infrastructure. Okay. You have a separate instance for every user. It's it's not the right way to use the Lightning Network. Nodes are supposed to be routing channels, not servers. Okay. Okay. So it was just one thing that we realized in in our. We made not that we made a mistake. We learned a lot from it but we evolve. So first you establish a DID. Then the second thing you establish is an identity hub. What that does is that becomes the data storage piece of all the content that you use. And then we use a lightning wallet to attach value to the data transfer with your DID. So what Zion is doing effectively is that you have a decentralized identifier, you have decentralized data storage, and then you have a lightning wallet all bundled into one single application. And this is all available open source on our relay. And then what it allows for is a creator like yourself or my partner, JP Sears, or all of our investors like Tony Robbins, Aubrey Marcus, Mark Moss, Robert Breedlove, all the people that are in our corner can go establish their own communities that are held in this decentralized network. By the way, we don't own DID. This is an open standard that Block is using, Microsoft is using. We're following an open standard that very large companies have decided this is how decentralized identity should be done. They host their content there, and now people can go access their content from any application, right? Zion is just gonna be one of the first to do it. But we hope that there's many applications in the future that data storage and identity is on one layer, and then you can access it from any place. So no centralized surface should own your identity. You can have a verifiable credential with the username within a service, but you can access your content from anywhere. That if someone turns you off, you're like, okay, I can go to this place and someone can still access it from another application because your DID will never change. 
your identity online shouldn't disappear, even though that you're moving where the content is hosted. That's the beautiful thing about RSS. It's like, that's the first piece of that. But what about video? What about photos? What about like posting content, like long form content, right? Like imagine if we could build all of these things like Substack, Twitter, Facebook, but without Facebook, without Substack, without this centralized service that's pointing the data to a DNS. Every, could, everyone's waiting for Substack to deplatform somebody. I think, haven't they? Have they? I think they, I mean, I don't know, probably. It's like the big fear. It's a pledge. It's a pledge. That's the thing. Like all of these things are pledges, right? Because I think this is the really important aspect is like, we won't censor you versus we can't censor you. When you establish a DID in your own identity hub controlled by your own private public key pairs, Zion as a company cannot censor you. Where is that created though? Well, like you it's, say- it's, it's created on an instance that we are initially hosting, but the point is you can make your own instance. Because it's, because it's open source- How? You can, what is that? How do you create your own instance? You can go download our Relay and host our own Relay. You can go to, literally go to our GitHub and create your own Relay instance and host your own identity hub. It does not sound like something I could do. No. Yeah? Yeah, I don't you think reckon? so. I don't think so. All right, so. we're going to look at it. No, no, I don't, I'm, I'm saying I don't think you can just okay. like, like as an engineer, like right now it's highly technical. But the point is, is not that you can't right now. The point is, how are you building the architecture in the future, right? Like I think... The reframe is that we're not going to be the most decentralized thing on the internet right away. It's just yeah. not possible. But the point is, how are you building it at the base layer for that path? Imagine you could have Facebook without Facebook. But what what stops you? You you make a pledge. What stops you deplatforming me from Zion? Well, I think number one, it's not in our ethos to do that, and we cannot turn off particular DIDs. We can't turn off identity hubs. We can decide. Like, for example. Because you're going to have rules, right? You, you, you are going to have rules. Yeah, of yeah. course. Like, there's no child porn. There's nothing like criminal and, and, and terrorist activity. Because we can also, on our application, decide to display certain communities and not display certain communities. We cannot turn the communities off. We can just choose them to not be displayed. But that doesn't prevent another application from displaying them. Right? Like, we cannot literally remove things from a server because we don't control that server. So, so are these IDs there are stored on what the Bitcoin blockchain? So Ion is a layer two, yeah, um, and it's a layer two kind of identity service. Um, and I would, you know, I'm not necessarily technical enough to tell you exactly yeah. how the pieces of Ion would work, but I would. Daniel Buckner is Daniel amazing. Buckner. So he is our genius. When was it? When was it? When we spoke to him, first time, 2019. He's I think. a genius. So I'll tell you how this I all love happened. Daniel. I'll tell you how this all happened. So. About two months ago, Daniel comes to Austin. We go to Soho House for, it was supposed to be a coffee hangout. I'm telling him about Zion V2, all the things we've been building on data stories. Like, hey, what if we help you do it with this? And they, they helped us figure out this last piece we've been trying to solve for almost a year. And they're like, what if we help you build this and we do these and we'll help you build these Go libraries for specifically identity and data storage. And I was like, oh yeah, let's do it together. And then so Daniel's actually been instrumental in helping us, guiding us in our process to build this new version of, of Zion. And you know, one of the coolest things I think that's going to happen over the next few months is that TBDEX is building their version. They're going to build a version of Signal, I think. They're also going to, then there's Zion. All of these apps can talk to each other with no centralized server. So I can send a message from Zion into TBDEX or into whatever they end up building all interoperably on this open Web3 standard, to me, that's the coolest thing. 
is that data is in one place and then everyone can talk to each other through this DID network. What is Zion going to look like? Oh, I mean, I have it on my phone. I mean, it's like, a, it's a social, I can send you screens. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a full on, like, it's a social kind of app. It's like a social experience app. It's, I mean, here it is. You can, you can play around with it. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a social experience. The, 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 and this is the new version, right? Like the first version we released was a very not great UI because it was something I drew up on a napkin. I'd self-funded the whole project. And I was like, you know what? Let me see what I can get out to the world. It actually caught fire. That was the thing that, that I, I kind of surprised me was like, this thing is actually a thing that should be in the world. And that's when we said, okay, let's make this a real thing. Let's go get some investors. Let's go bring in some people to help me because I can keep self-funding it, but it's not the same. And that's why like, hopefully this, this comes out after April 4th. Yeah. 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 So, you know, the business is now valued at $53 million. We raised $6 million from some amazing investors. Greg Carson, which was on the show is my board member and my lead investor at XBTO. So it's like, it's really exciting now that we have support because we have thousands of people that believe in this new model. So it kind of looks like Instagram basically it, right now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But the focus is not around feeds. It's around communities. It's focused around creators developing a community and then within that community, developing a conversation. Because I believe what all creators do really well is they get people around them and then they're the curators of conversations. They're the curators of themes. So the way we nest things is that you join a community and then a creator can develop a conversation and then it could be a thread underneath that conversation. And then all that is owned by the creator themselves. We don't own the relationship between the creator and the fan. And by the way, there can be micropayments done through Lightning all on. But wait, wait, when you say you don't own it, you can still you can still remove them from the platform. Not technically, not technically, because we can't remove a DID from Ion. We cannot like that's not. But what something... I'm saying is like if I create my community and Danny follows it, and I start posting shit that you don't think's right, you can remove me from the platform. No, I can't. I can remove the visibility of you within that app framework. But but the visibility removes me in some ways. Yeah. And then how does, if I, if my visibility has gone, how does Danny still see my messages? Da- Danny, Danny would not be able to see those messages. So, so, so what I'm saying is, and it's not an attack. I mean, yeah. I'm glad you're doing this with Lightning. I'm, I'm glad with what you're building, but it's still, you still have that issue where you, where yours is still a pledge. And yes, perhaps this evolves to a later state where there are more decentralized versions of this that can't be switched off. But right now it still feels like it is the same. You can, you're still pledging that these are your terms. What happens if the USG comes knocking in your door and says, listen, dude, you can't have this content up there. You cannot have this, these people discussing COVID or you cannot have these people discussing Ukraine war like this. And if you don't, you know, we're going to put the pressure on you. You could still face that. I think that there's possibilities for everything. I, yeah. I, I know that there's possibilities for everything because of the life that I've lived. I haven't been able to address that possibility yeah. yet, and I'm not sure. But I, but I think the fundamental way that we're building it is different. In, in that scenario, if, if you had to remove the visibility of Peter's post and he went to somewhere else using the same DID, would he retain me as a follower? 100%. He retains a relationship. So you just lose that particular platform. You don't yeah, actually Yeah, that's the thing is that Zion is not even really a platform. It's more like a browser to view things. And then for us, because we are, there are some elements that are important to us. We can decide for stuff not to be displayed, I guess, on the screen. This is a good question, by the way, because I actually don't know the answer on how we would take someone off yet. I, I know that maybe it's possible. I don't actually know how it's possible because hmm. we cannot delete a DID. No, but your, your HTML, CSS 
Xcode, whatever it is that yeah. you're programming. The client. It, the client. Uh, can choose not to display perhaps something on a DA. Yeah, so if it chooses not to display something, like Danny might still have that connection between wallets, but it doesn't have that connection between the content that I'm putting up because the content that I create against that DID in your platform exists within your servers and database. No, not at all. I mean, that's the whole point. The point is that we don't actually host any of the content. It's on your own identity hub. That's the thing is that, okay. that the future is not about, like we have an instance that we're hosting up for JP because he's my partner. Yeah, he's yeah. my like co-founder in this business. This is JP's instance that we're hosting for him. But the idea is that creators should have their own instances because not one service should be your host provider. Like, for example, if, you know, we are helping you host this, we're going to be your relay provider. Let's say we don't have a good relationship. You're like, you know what, Justin, I want to leave. You have to leave if you want to, but nothing changes with the relationship. The content doesn't disappear. The relationships don't disappear. The DIDs that are attached to your community, none of that disappears. But, because, then, but then I need to provide the audience with an experience to access that content. There has to be like an interface that's designed for them to access it. Yeah, and I think that's that's the big point that we're trying to make is that just like there's a website that you access by saying www, like a DNS that you can access and you can access it from any browser, that's what we believe the future of social is going to look like. Where there's going to be many apps that maybe display things in a different way, but it all points to a single place from the creator. The creator owns, because you know through a verifiable credential that this DID is in fact Peter. Sure, but then if it's like that, if that content uh, provider hosts a podcast, then needs an interface to dis display the list of the podcast. And if it's photos, then there has to be a, a design of how the photos display. Is it a grid? It has to be a client. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm saying is, will clients always be centralized? Because otherwise you have to get to a stage where people have to be able to code their own clients. Or there has to be, maybe it's something different. You can download a, now there's always got to be a client. So unless someone can build a client themselves. Yeah, and I think there's going to be, so when we move away from, just, you know, we have an Apple app, we have an Android app, we're going to have web app in the next few months, yeah. then clients are going to be built a lot easier. So I, I want to give the framework that imagine we're in 1995 and we're at the first websites being built. That's where we are with this stuff. GeoCities. Like we're at the GeoCities and like, you know, we are the kind of the Lois and Clark climbing over this hill because it's so hard. What we're doing is so hard because it's yeah. there isn't precedent for this stuff before. Like if you've done any research in this stuff of DIDs, like a lot of people aren't implementing them. We're using, you know, we're just starting to use IPFS, which is crazy file storage. And it's like, we're getting into these things that a lot of people haven't done, but let's go two years ahead. Everyone's going to be implementing this standard and it's going to be a lot easier to build these applications. The point is we're just one of the first and I don't have a lot of answers for you. I wish I had better answers. It's just around the vision, right? Okay, it's you know, I get it. So with IPFS, are you, so if I had that instance and I upload content, you're storing that on these, on IPFS? That's so, so not today, but yeah. in like three weeks, that is our implementation we're moving forward with. So wow. Identity Hub stores data on IPFS. That's the whole vision behind why it's like you own your identifier at the DID level. Then you own on your content, which is stored on IPFS through this identity hub. And then everyone has a lightning wallet to transact within that network. And how, how do I pay for the storage of that content? That's a good question that I don't have an answer to yet. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, one thing that we're doing, because we know we have to subsidize. You don't really want to charge me, do you? No, I mean, you know, of course not. But it's yeah. one of those things that we, we have three tiers. We will have a creator tier inside of Zion where like we're helping you know, subsidize some of these costs. 
But I don't know the answer yet. We're still at this like really peak stage to build most of these things. I feel really mean. Like I'm giving you really hard questions. No, it's okay, man. I mean, because these are questions that help me go back. I'm like, you know, how am I thinking about this? But yeah, I need to take a look at it. I but, know, I know Jeremy's going to be interested. But, by the way, this is all like, don't trust what I'm saying. Go to our GitHub, github.com slash getzion slash relay. All of this is 100% open source. And did we talk about this? <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> right. Talk to me about this. I mean, okay. So how this came about was, you know, I wanted to book, write a book about how censorship works mm-hmm. and then how Bitcoin is a solution to defeating censorship. So I wrote an outline. I thought I was going to do a talk at the Bitcoin conference about it. The talk ended up not coming about, but the book did. And so we wrote this book in eight weeks. Um, it basically outlines how did censorship start? It was the decentralized century versus the centralized century. Like what happened in the decentralized Very Mark Moss. Um, yeah. And then just leading to how Bitcoin and Lightning is, is a potential to defeat censorship globally and, and how it's a base layer to defeat censorship. And I'm very blessed that our investors endorsed the book. You know, Tony Robbins endorsed the cover. Aubrey Marcus, our investor, endorsed the back and Mark Moss endorsed the back as well. So, so is all censorship bad? Is all censorship bad? It's a really tricky area I get into. It's like, what is censorship and is all censorship bad? So, for example, you have certain policies for things that are unacceptable in your platform, and I completely agree with them. But essentially, that's a form of censorship because you're rem- you're removing content that you disagree with. But the the I think the line you draw is around like legality and the legal framework. Yeah, there's, lo- there's totally laws. Fair. Like laws are laws. I can't I can't control the laws. Like that is illegal. We uh, yeah. we tote the line of illegal. We're not. But I don't have an opinion. Yeah, but I completely agree with you on that. Um, but it's but other platforms choose to cover things or remove content, which isn't illegal, but they deem is better for their platform. Yeah, of course. Because of how they're built fundamentally. Like remember that the the advertisers are the customer of these platforms. Yeah. And your data is being used to manipulate you. So a lot of the problems with censorship that I outline in the book is the fundamental differences of the business models. Zion is 100% subsidized by the customers that use the product. We're not bringing in a third party to sell your data to go then make money because we can arbitrage that. Info. Like We're not doing that. It's the business models that are fundamentally broken and we want to break through those business models. In that um, maybe a far-right group or a white supremacist group, uh, the advertisers on YouTube don't really want their adverts, adverts on, their, on their content. Yes, And there will be other examples, probably better ones I can give than that. Whereas... You don't have to think about that. No, because we're not subsidizing advertising. And the reason I know this is because I was in those meetings, right? Like before I, I, my company that I sold previously was an advertising influencer marketing business. I was in meetings with the world's largest advertisers spending billions of dollars on Facebook saying that we do not want to be associated with this type of content, Facebook. We're going to pull our budget. Please remove that content. It's not brand safe. They remove the content, ban them for community guidelines in terms of service. And then the advertiser runs the ad. This is the business model. Fun, like this is how they make money. It's not like we don't. We shouldn't question it. So you have to change the business model if you want to change the solution. But I, I mean, I go back to the point. Like, sh- should we have ultimate free speech? Should all speech? Should all speech, whatever it is, be allowable and free? Or should there be limitations? My belief is that as human beings, we have agency to receive things and to decide. Yeah. We as two individuals are sitting here. We're having a conversation. 
there isn't someone in the middle allowing you to say something to me or me allowing to say something to you. I receive the information, I interpret it, and I say, yes, I don't agree with you, I agree with you, I love you, I don't love you, whatever it is. I think that should be the framework online. But right now, there's many arbiters between us and everything that we see on the internet. We don't know anything that's true or real. I think the framework that we're developing is that you have two DIDs you have a verifiable credential with an identity hub where I know that everything posted in this single place is Peter's and Peter's only. And I'm signing a key to gather the content as if we're having a personal conversation. And it's my decision to interpret the content that Peter posts in the way that I want. That's where we're going. And that's what I believe is the future. And what about social networks themselves? Like Facebook, I, I just, I don't use it anymore apart from to post marketing to. Like here is a new podcast if you want to listen to it. Yeah. Um, here is something going on with my football team. That's it. I don't share family photos anymore. I don't post opinions. I don't, you know, when we first came, it was quite fun. It was new and you'd have a photo from the night before and you'd all laugh about it. I, that's pretty much dead for me. And I feel like Facebook as a platform is dying. Maybe the metaverse will save them. Uh, Instagram's kind of interesting but it's really a little bit like, oh, look how great my life is kind of thing. That's that's really what it is. I feel like Twitter is failing miserably for what it is. How do you feel? And also YouTube. Let's throw YouTube in as a social, because it's kind of a social network yeah. of videos. Um, but there's so much control over what you can and can't post on it now and yeah. people being deplatformed de just for having conversations. Yeah, Brett Weinstein was removed for having conversations. Now, I disagree with him on some of the things he was talking about, but I want to hear the conversation. Yeah, uh, I think even Marty Ben got flagged up recently. Yeah, how, how do you how do you feel? Where do you feel we're at with social networks? And do you think we're heading towards decentralized social networks? I think we are. I think yeah. we're trying to build one. I think we're, we're making an attempt from the base layer. Um, I think that the f the future of social networks um, is that it's focused around communities. Um, it's not necessarily these open network frameworks. So I think that you know what I always have had affinity towards personally is that. I follow a few people because I really like what they say and I enjoy that the communities that you create. So I don't think that this like open feed of like everyone spewing everything and you just look at everything in this non-ordered thing. I don't think that's the right way social should work. That's why our approach is that there's no open feed. What happens is that if you join Zion, you'll have all these communities you want to join. The JP Sears community the Peter community, the Mark Moss community, the Robert Breedlove community, the Natalie Brunel community. And then within there, you will have a self-selected group of people that have voted with their Bitcoin that I want to be part of that community, see all the content within that community, have an open conversation in a chat feed with that community and decide what's happening there because these people have an affinity towards me. That's what I believe the future of social looks like is that it's around communities. We're tribal creatures. We want to feel like we're part of things. That's what I feel like the future of social looks like. But there's a lot of other layers. I think that it has to be built on a decentralized monetary layer, bingo, Bitcoin. It has to be built on an open source framework. It has to be built in a censorship resistant way. The creators should own everything in a future social network. The people that use the network should have digital property rights through encryption. This is what the future of social should look like. And if we can meet all those parameters, I think we've achieved what we need to achieve. Yeah, that's interesting because um, Elon Musk has come out a little bit critical of the algorithm for Twitter. Yesterday. Yesterday. And he, I got three tweets of those. Like, yeah. Yeah. A bunch of tweets came to me as like, oh, this is a shoe up for you. Go answer him. Yeah. Well, it is. Did, did you see it, Danny? No, I, I think he, he put out a poll, didn't he? 
should the Twitter algorithm be open source? Be open source. Yeah. Uh, I think it should be. Well, I, I think that the problem fundamentally is the algorithm, right? I, like, mm. because it's an open feed. My my disagreement is this open feed that can just spew things, and you could just listen to everything. And like, like one of the things is, I think there should be consequences for hate on social networks. Yeah, like, I, like, I agree. So, like the way that Zion approaches it, for example, if you're in a community. And, and this is just how we've built it, is that when you make a comment in a community, you stake a certain amount of Bitcoin as a bond to the creator with a staking contract for, for about 24 hours. If the creator, which you're part of their community, remember, you're inside their community, deems your comment hateful and they delete your comment from this open feed. Remember, you're in their world, not, not your own world. You lose that Bitcoin. You lose the bond. Can that not be that, abused though? Okay, if it's abused, let's go into a scenario with it's abused. If you're the creator and you're abusing your audience, do you think they're going to stick around? Some might. Some might. My, it's what's deemed abuse. I'll give you an example. So uh, YouTube, despite being the second biggest uh, search engine on the net, being part of Google, having billions and billions of revenue. They own it. Right. Their comment section is ridiculous. The amount of spam that gets sent to it is unbelievable. Exactly. Okay. So rather than just allowing the spam to get out there and ruining the comment section, we moderate the comments before they're released. Otherwise, you just have, it's just shit. But in going through it, we have a very simple policy. We, um, we remove all spam, which is like join my WhatsApp group, all this crap. But we allow all criticism of, even if it's of me, it goes out. Of course. Um, we don't allow direct abuse of our guests so if someone says something horrible and said why have you got that fat fuck on we just won't allow that because we just we don't want our guests abused but any criticism me the guest that's allowed but i could very easily when i'm moderating those just get rid of the ones which are critical of me i can create my um i can create my kind of like echo chamber of people who support the show we we don't allow that but i could do that and I'm, i'm sure some people do I'm sure some people do remove that. If we had a thing like this, I can remove all the hate and criticism of me and get to keep the Bitcoin. That's true. But the question is, is that going to be sustainable for a long term? Because my argument is that those individuals will stop commenting at some point. Well, there, there are plenty of people on Twitter who will block people, not for being abusive, just for criticizing them. Sure. And they would create their own echo chamber. Of course. Yeah. And I, and I think, but I, I think that we haven't seen what this could look like if there was consequences through Bitcoin. I think like, that's the thing is like, our mission is to clean up cyberspace. By the way, I support what you're doing. I'm just like questioning. No, no. And and I know you're questioning it. I think, I think this is actually, this is a big concept that like, you know, I've spoken with Sailor about individually is like, he thinks that lightning will clean up all these centralized networks because imagine you had to be an accredited user in order to even make a comment on Peter's thing. And then if you weren't accredited, you couldn't actually make a comment or you couldn't tweet to me. I only want certain people that are accredited people. We're doing that same thing inside of Zion. So I don't think we know the answer yet. I think the true thing is that we know that it's a, right now, you know, Zion has a little bit over 3,000 creators. There's about 1,300 communities in there. If I look at stuff, there isn't a lot of hate in there, but it's a very small network. We don't know yet. But I think if you have consequences through spam, a lot of this stuff will go away. And I'm with you. Look, Twitter for me has become a problem. Um, and I think I don't think they've given enough control in the right way to to the 
to the person controlling their profile. I think they it's not get, their profile. The profile that they uh, they think they they own. think they own, but they they allow kind of like broad things like uh, you can lock your account. Okay, so it's only you know, people who I think you you mutually follow can comment, or they lock it so only people that you follow can comment. But I think they should put other tools in there, like you know if you, if I used to post something and maybe it's slightly controversial opinion it doesn't fit within the common narrative within bitcoin you should get all this fucking abuse from people i don't follow i don't know i don't like and it's just absolute bollocks uh, i would like to be able to just delete them i would like to be able to remove abusive posts that are under my tweets and do you know what i'd like to uh, at all i think twitter should do they, they've got the block and the mute i think they should just have a uh not allowed to comment. So somebody can follow you, they can read your posts, but you can just you can just ban them from comments on you because all they do is post abuse. And I think there's lots of little tools like that they could use because what Twitter is, it's just one giant community which is gamed around. For some people, it's gamed around having positive conversations. Others, it's gamed around negative. Hate, yeah. yeah, negativity and hate. It's just bollocks. Yeah, but, but I think let's look at their, is that advantageous to their business model? Because what that increases is the hate, in fact, increases daily active users, it increases the number of tweets, and it increases the concept that they sell to an advertiser, which is engagement. Until it doesn't. You know, Facebook. I agree. Facebook's approach worked until it didn't. Yeah. We've seen their share price. I've, I've essentially quit Twitter. Yeah. I, all I'm using Twitter for now is I will retweet shows when they go out, and I will maybe, if I if there's like a important project like Zion and you message me and say, Pete, look, we've got this. Can you retweet it for me? I will. But I have, re I have quit being involved in any conversations anymore. It's, it's for me as a, as a tool for debate, it doesn't work. Yeah. Nobody changes their mind. And there's too many people who are pricks to others in conversation. Very mean. Yeah. And by the way, I'm a hypocrite myself. I've done it myself. I found myself that the point where I actually decided to come off wasn't someone being hateful to me. It was me being a prick myself. Mm. You know, I, I sent a sarcastic remark to somebody and then I had a pop at them. I was like, what am I doing here? What am I doing? Why am I? I'm, I know I'm not like this in person. Yeah. Every time I see you, we have a positive conversation. Me and Danny have never had an argument in mm. three years of working together. Yet, for some reason, Twitter makes me turn into a prick. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with this bullshit. But I think if you've seen the social dilemma, there's a lot of things in the algorithm that they, you know, they've done some studies that it's like it creates these echo chambers of hate sometimes. And you're like, yeah, burn it down. Like, yeah, take them down. Like, it's 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 the worst parts of us that sometimes are displayed on these centralized networks because it's driven by these algorithms. And and I, I do think that the algorithms don't know the difference between love and hate because mm -hmm. they're not humans. They just know the difference between high engagement and low engagement and virality. And to them, that's the proxy they use for their algorithms. It's like, let's get more people riled up because it's more time on our network. And I think that's the danger to society. It's not just hate though. Like hate, hate is a problem and it is, it is. And there's a lot of it. And I just don't buy this things like where people say, oh, it's not real life, just ignore it or just you know, develop thick skin. When you receive thousands of messages every week, that are like horrendous and awful it just it's not nice to read right no. it just does your fucking head in no. it like it's, it can send you mental and for anyone to just say that they probably never had enough followers or enough hate to realize what it's like yeah also some people are different some people have thicker skin let's just accept it but it's not just the hate i don't believe progress is made 
you and I can sit down and have a conversation. We may agree, disagree, but we will make progress. And we're more likely to be empathetic to each other's opinions in doing this. On Twitter, it's like, everybody's looking at me here. I can quickly type a reply and I can quickly just argue and I can double down and I can triple down. And then everyone around me agrees with me. So I, I must be right. You know, you very, you rarely see someone go, do you know what? I think you're right here. I got this wrong. I'm sorry. That just doesn't yeah. happen. There's no incentive model to do it. For me, it's an absolute miserable failure. Yeah. And I think that's because there's aren't consequences. There aren't consequences. There's zero, like in centralized networks, there are zero consequences. And I've like, I've had some like really rough experiences. Like um, there was, there was a, a friend that I had in my life for a few months and, you know, she, like she has a crazy stalker um, somewhere in, in like Mexico City and he started attacking me and the amount of things that he would send me for a month was like, like on Instagram, like, like chopping of head off videos and tagging me in them. And I was like, how is Instagram allowing this stuff to exist on their, yep. like, how is this even possible? And then I realized like how big these companies have gone is like, they've, they've lost all their control in terms of the, the terrible things on the network because you can sign up to these networks with an email address and a password. You can't verify identity. You have no money tied to this account. So you can build thousands of them, attack someone and then create another account, attack someone, create another account, attack someone and create another account because there's no fundamental consequences. But coming back to Bitcoin is that if we build this accreditation service on Bitcoin, even on centralized networks, it would disincentivize the hateful things that happen on the internet. It's like our biggest mission is like Zion wants to be the safest and most civil place on the web. Why? Because there's consequences through your digital wallet if you decide to be a bad actor. If you're going to be a terrible person inside of Peter's community, you're going to have financial consequences for being that. But if you're good and you're a good contributor to society and you're a nice person, then everything is all good. And those consequences exist everywhere else in life. Exactly. I mean, so you, one, so there's a chapter in my book, like I, and I say this exact story. You, do, you go to a bar and you tell someone to their face, like you're a piece of whatever, you say something bad, and then you hit them in the face. You will have lifelong consequences for your actions in the real world. But you can be the worst person online, send death threats, send death videos to someone, tell them that their blah, blah, blah should go to whatever, like saying very terrible things, and you have no consequences in life. That's a terrible way to live. Yeah, exactly. If you came in here now, we did this interview, and you were just nothing but a horrible, rude prick, probably cut it short and say do you know what not into this mate we're gonna we're not gonna do this if you come into my home and start yelling abuse at me i'm gonna ask you to leave of course you come into my workplace you're abusive you're gonna leave you go into a bar and you're abusive they, they're gonna ask you to this there are consequences everywhere you're absolutely right there's none of it some guy the other day to my sister to my fucking sister my sister was very close to my mother he went into her profile he found a picture of my mum. he found out that my mum had died and he sent the picture back to my sister and said everyone's glad she's dead. Where else in life would someone do that? They won't do that. And there's no consequences. But you could build a reputation score. Imagine there's a reputation score. It's based on things like like what percentage of people block you or mute you, you know, that kind of thing. Add into it how long you've been on the platform. You have a reputation score. And you could put something like, I don't know, anyone below, say it's out of 10, anyone below a five can't comment on my profile. Yeah. You're going to work hard not to be a prick. Yeah. You're just going to work. We, we see it in our YouTube videos. You have your likes, your dislikes. Yeah, we know a video that's like a 97 plus. That's quite popular. We know anything that goes below 90, 
there were some issues with that. People didn't like that interview. Mm. Now it's not, we're not going to do that again. We're going to question why did that not work? Why did, why did people not like that? There was always going to be some people, but that to us is a reputation score for the, for the, for, for each episode. We have reputation scores for the podcast on Apple, you know, majority uh, reviews are five. Some are one. We ignore those both. We go and look at the two and the threes and the fours. We're like, okay, what well, these are the most interesting ones. What are people saying? Recently we had a, uh, thing where people are saying all you have are right-wing libertarians on the show which isn't true but we read the comments it's like yeah you know what let's go and have a look at how many of our shows are right-wing people or libertarians we haven't asked enough people from the left or moderates you know these we we consider all these key factors for reputation it does not exist on twitter and it's shit yeah and it's created this toxic relationship and it's created like you get on there you're like what am i about to see like if I send this, is someone going to be really hateful and rude to me? Are they going to tell me to die like today because I did something like, you don't even know me. Why are you being so mean, right? Like there's like, I, I agree with you. Like when I when we launched Zion, there's a little bit of little hate that came out towards me. And I felt like, why are these people so mean to me? Like they don't know who I am. They don't know anything that I came from. Like what nope. did I do? Like what did I do to them? And and I, I, I've been very like, I wasn't very public before this company. I was very quiet and, you know, I start feeling this thing and I was like, man, Bitcoin has to fix these problems. It, and I think it's the accreditation piece. And I think like Sailor's talked about this a lot. He's like, he's got, cause he's just like one of the smartest people in the world that talks about it. It's like, how do you fix up? How do you fix the internet? And like lightning and Bitcoin is a way to do it. And I think, you know, it's I, we're just one of the first approaches, but I, everything you're saying I agree with. And it's the thing that drives me every day. Well, listen, I gave you some tough questions, but I support everything you do, man. Like uh, I really appreciate it and I hope you fix it because like I'm like I said, I'm done with Twitter. I might come back at a later date uh, and I'll have clear kind of policies about how I'm gonna use it. Yeah. But I'm done with it and I'm and I don't care about it. And like yeah. I'm, I feel good about it. Yeah. I feel like it's uh it's like you know when we talked about like maybe giving up drink or you know, exercising more. I feel like coming off Twitter is a healthy thing. Yeah. Like it improves your health, yeah. which is a weird place to be where you're actually coming off a social network because it's bad for your health. But it's, it's become a part of our life. Like, like, be, like the, the digital world or the virtual world, whatever you want to call it, and the real world have like symbols like come together in life. And if it becomes a toxic place, you want to remove that from your life as, as soon as you can. Yeah, man. All right, listen, this is, uh, this is very cool. Where, where do people find out more about Zion? Where do um, they find you, dude? Um, so, you know, we're launching a new site actually on April 4th, zion.fyi as our new domain. Uh, but just look for me on all my socials, just Justin Resvani on social media. You can find me, Justin Zion. That'll probably pop up. And then our book comes out on April 5th. Uh, the book is Unapologetic Freedom. Uh, unapologeticfreedombook.com so me and jp kind of wrote this one and this supports zion like none of the money of this book goes to me personally like all the proceeds are going to build zion which is decentralized social networking all right man well listen keep crushing and uh yeah i appreciate you coming on and telling your story thank you for your time man. and uh, Thanks. i'm glad we did this yeah. thank you so much no thank you and uh, yeah just keep doing it man and anything you need you know where i am appreciate you so much All right, thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.